On this episode of Life in Practice, we are discussing neuromodulators, aka Botox, with our interview with Dr. Sue of Oak Dermatology, located in Naperville, Illinois. And we are also discussing expert retention. What does it mean and how do you do it? Little did you know, I have a birthday coming up next week. I'm turning 33 and I'm super nervous about the aging process. And I never really thought about it before until I started seeing girls on Instagram posting things. But you participated in something this past week and did the research and actually partook in something that I've been curious about but have never actually dabbled into. So (laughs) tell our listeners what you did. I hadn't either. Last Tuesday, I ended up getting a consultation for Botox with Dr. Sue of Oak Dermatology uh, here in Naperville, Illinois. And he was recommended to me by my dermatologist who I normally go to for a skincare condition. So like if a random mole pops up, he checks it to make sure it's not cancerous because, you know, we're getting older and we should get those things checked out. Um, but I asked him for a referral for uh, Botox because he doesn't do it. And I went to see Dr. Sue and I was able to ask him a bunch of questions that I got to record because I figured that a lot of our listeners probably had the same questions. So I think it's something we can play for them now. Welcome to the podcast, Life in Practice, where we talk about all things law, motherhood, and womanhood. We're your hosts, Natalie and Jessica. We're two lawyers turned working moms here to share the wisdom and experience we learned along the way. Whether you're looking to improve your practice or figure out when you'll finally get some sleep, we're here to give you real-life answers sprinkled with entertaining stories and some laughter. As always, this is a judgment-free zone to share your questions while learning how to lead a better life and improve your practice. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. This is my first time getting Botox. Um, Do you want to explain to me a little bit about what I'm going to do today and why Botox is important? Yeah, so... Botox is used to um, soften lines, especially lines of expression. And now what most people don't understand is that a lot of these lines come from muscles as you're acting or being hyperactive under the skin, especially down the upper face. Right? In between the eyebrows, when you pull your muscles together, you create these levens between your eyebrows. Or when you pull up on your eyebrows, you see these horizontal lines across your forehead or when you smile really, really uh, uh, big, uh, you get these crow's feet extending from the corners of your eyes. That's from your muscles contracting. So if that's the root of the problem, if we can somehow relax the muscles, then the skin doesn't get scrunched up or accordioned together and the lines naturally go away. So that's what Botox does, it relaxes the muscles. And that's how we get rid of the lines. Great. So what is the difference between Botox and fillers? Because I know some people consider fillers. Right. It's a big difference. And I think most people, a lot of people kind of uh, interchangeably use these two terms, but they're two completely different beasts. We just talked about what Botox does, right? It relaxes muscles. it It doesn't actually add any volume to the skin or to the face at all, right? It only relaxes muscles. Fillers, on the other hand, adds volume to some way, right? So let's say you have a deep divot or you have a deep valley in your, uh, in, your, in, your, in your face or you have some area that have lost a lot of volume. That's where a filler will come in. Okay, that augments uh, a certain areas of the face. It kind of lifts up 
the entire plane of tissue uh, by creating volume there, by depositing a volume there. So there are completely different ways to go about addressing different types of deficits mm -hmm. on the face. Okay. And how long does Botox last? It varies from person to person. You know, I think on average, I think uh, most people feel that it probably lasts anywhere between three and a half to four months. Uh, so most people have to do it about three times a year. But everybody's different. I can't deny that some people will have a shorter duration, uh, particularly people that are thin, that are very active. Somehow they metabolize this a little faster. So maybe for them it's two and a half months, maybe three months. But there are going to be some people who say, you know what, Jeff, mine lasts a good five or six months, and that's perfectly acceptable. And that the only way to find out is to do it and see how long it lasts for them uniquely. And over time, do I have to increase the amount of units I use in Botox? That's a good question. And I think that also varies from person to person. In my experience, not really. Uh, if anything, I think a lot of, especially women, find that they may actually need less units over time. Um, because if you think about it, uh, what Botox does is relax the muscles. When the muscles are not being used, they, just like anywhere else on your body, we don't use your, let's say your biceps, you don't work out as much, the muscles get smaller. So when the muscles get smaller, you don't actually need as much Botox to actually perform the job. But that difference is very minuscule. Uh, I personally think that for the most part, 99% of the people, the amount of Botox needed stays pretty consistent over time. That's good news. What are possible side effects? Very few. Um, we do know that Botox, um, the effect of it, there's a finite limit to how, to, to how many months that it stays in your body. Right? Your body eventually overcomes that and, uh, um, and the duration of that effect goes away. Again, like we said, typically approximately three and a half to four months. Um, so there's really no long-term issues with it. The worst that can happen if you do Botox and you say, you know, it did exactly that you, what you explained it, what it was going to do, but I don't like it. And that's all right, because in four months, you never have to do it again. You're not going to look any better. You're not going to look any worse than before the treatment. I suppose the only downside of doing it is that, yeah, there, there, it is a needle poke, right? So I suppose there's a little bit of discomfort. And perhaps, you know, very occasionally, there may be a little tiny bruise. That's really pretty much it. And are there any specific maintenance or care instructions that I can do at home in order to, I guess, preserve the Botox or make it last a little bit longer? Yeah, you know, I, I wish there was. You know, I wish there was some sort of magic potion to uh, enhance the effect of Botox or enhance the duration of Botox. Nothing that I know of that can consistently do that, right? Um, and one question I get a lot is, is there any sort of topical uh, regimen that I can do to replace Botox? Again, not that I know of. Yeah. Uh, there's no um, active ingredient in any topical regimen that I know of that can replace the muscle relaxing effect of Botox. Doctor, one other question. What products are there? I think women just generally think Botox is one 
thing, mm-hmm. but there are other products, right? That's correct. That's correct. We, we use interchangeably the term Botox and actually the class of medication, which is neuromodulator. That's actually the class of the medication. Botox is just one brand. Right? It happens to be the most long, the longest standing brand in the U.S., but across the world, we have lots of different options. In the U.S. even, we have four options, FDA approved, safety tested, they all work great. There's Botox, Zeoman, Dysport, and Jubal. Um, and I, I think people ask me all the time, well, what do you prefer? What's the best product? I think it's, we're splitting hairs. Um, the difference that anybody can demonstrate among, uh, uh, with, with all of them, the, the difference is minuscule, if, if, if any. Um, and the duration is approximately the same, the onset of action is approximately the same, the safety and outcome is approximately the same. So I don't really have one preference of, uh, I don't have a preference of one product over another. Um, a lot of times though, um, the, the only preference frankly is, is cost, right? Because they're competing products and they will have promotion from time to time. Uh, so it's good for the consumer to just kind of stay up um, what the promotions there are, there are from different product lines, so they can make that decision. So they can, so consumers can switch from one product to another, or do you recommend keeping the same product every time? Well, you know, I think in certain situations, I would actually uh, advocate from switching from one to another, especially when, and this is very rare, that you use, let's say, Botox for a while, and you say, you know, for some reason, it doesn't seem to work as well as before. Hmm. Well then. Let's try another one. Molecularly, they're just they're ever so slightly different, such that you may actually respond better to one versus another. Dr. Sue was really informative, and I think ultimately helped my my decision a little bit easier. And I was I was there. He was he answered the questions that I had, and I ended up doing Juvot. And the Juvot offered a um, rewards program. I think it gave me like forty dollars off for that treatment session. If you want to see Dr. Sue, he's at Oak Dermatology. It's a really nice building in Naperville. Uh, he seems really knowledgeable, so I would I would recommend him, especially if it's your first time doing it and you want to ask those questions. And going off of that, I have a ton of questions for you. How do you go from using a skincare product to then making the jump to, I'm going to spend how much for Botox? The point where I woke up in the morning with my 11 lines and I just hated seeing them. And... Nothing I tried was getting rid of them. Um, so I had a lot of forehead lines that didn't bother me, actually, because I was like, I don't really make a surprised face, right? Like they tell you, that was one of the things they tell you to make expressions. And so one of them that was a surprised face. And these are my lines. <laughs> There's like, what do you see? One, two, three, four, five, like seven lines. But it's like forced almost that right, you're doing forced. that. But look, look now, look at my face now, which there's nothing, absolutely no lines, no lines, <laughs> which is kind of like my fear though, into going into Botox is, were you nervous about having like that dreaded, like Spock brow? Yeah. <laughs> my husband was sending me pictures asking if how it went. Cause I went, I told him the day I was going and cause he kept telling me, he's like, you don't need it. You don't need it. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and he sent me like pictures of like the cat lady. I was afraid of that. I really was. But afterwards, I see now, like, if you do it within 
reason and you should be fine. But if you get addicted to it and you just want to keep doing it and doing it, I could see where like your body, your face just like it's completely stretched out. Like there's still like some movement in my face. You see it, right? Like yeah. there I can still like move my eyebrows. And and he told me that. He's like, "We're going to keep your expressions. Like you're going to not you're not going to lose that." Yeah, you're not numb to the face. Right. Like when it all started, do they give you any numbing product or do they just shoot you up right away? They just shoot you up. Do they draw on you, like drawing lines, like kind of plastic surgery? That's what I'm thinking of. No, no. He just determines how in his head how many units uh, each each portion of your face should take. And he said, do after five days, figure out if I want to follow up. And so I do want to follow up for my 11s. For those who don't know what 11s are, it's the lines between your eyebrows that literally look like the number 11. Mine were very pronounced, and so I think there's still a little bit left to, to take care of there. Um, but yeah, the, fi- the follow-up is going to be great. How long did the whole procedure take? The procedure itself, I think, was about five minutes. And did he have any recommendations for like afterwards? Like, are you not allowed to put makeup on? Or are you not allowed to wear hats? Like, anything like that? Nope, nothing. That's interesting. Because I asked thought him, that. Yeah, I asked him, like, should I ice it? He's like, no, you're good. My forehead, I want to say he did about four shots. And they look like little bee stings, like bumps on your face. And within 30 minutes, they're gone. Okay, so you do have a reaction right yeah. after. Yeah. There's a little bit of swelling. Okay. And there's is there a product you're supposed to put on afterwards? Nope. So just how, long, how many days does it take to set in, actually? Five. To fully set in five. In the day after you getting the Botox injections, were you taking pictures of yourself every single day leading up to those five days to see if like what the difference was between day one versus day five? Yes. And what does it look like? I want to see. Well, you saw the beginning of it. Let me show you my 11s. Look how severe they are. And for those of you listening, they're not even 11s. It's like an L and a backwards L because it's so bad. You're so silly. No. No, come on. Just be, be honest. It's no. pretty bad. It's pretty deep. I look like a little pug. But you're like purposely like scrunching yeah, yeah. your face so much. Yeah. Okay. So that's day one. That's day one. Is that after the injections? It's after the injections. And then two days later. This is so crazy to me. Like, yeah. There's a huge noticeable difference. And yeah. then today, which is what, a week later? And there's like nothing. Then after that, like he said, it depends on the person how many months mm-hmm. can go by. Mm-hmm. It's just you looking in the mirror deciding yep it's gone basically. yeah yeah so i did ask them that when i left and they said basically when you start to feel like that the, the creases you can start to feel them and you can start to see them do you have any fear though of like out aging your husband if you're to keep going to botox so like your face is gonna look more no lines and he's anti-botox i don't think he's anti-botox i think he was anti-spending money okay <laughs> Which is a big difference. <laughs> Which is like a lot of spouses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't... I think I'll eventually let a little bit of wrinkles set in. I think we covered the mom topic for the episode in covering Botox. I think that's something that interests moms. But this conversation that we had with the doctor and how we interviewed the doctor also made me think of the lawyer topic, which is how to retain an expert witness and how to interview them. And I think that's something you do a lot in your role as a prosecutor. As a prosecutor, we're lucky enough that all of our experts are basically from the Illinois State Police Crime Lab or our county lab. They both have forensic scientists who deal specifically in either DNA analysis, fingerprint analysis, um, 
gun residue, controlled substances, and drugs. And those then get broken down into all the different crimes that follow those. Your everyday drug um, traffic stop, let's say. Police pulls a person over, finds drugs in the car. We then, the police department has to submit those crimes submit those drugs, excuse me, into their evidence technician. Their evidence tech will then bring it to the crime lab. Usually it's county labs. Every now and then different departments go to the state lab. They'll submit those drugs, follow the proper chain of custody, and then that forensic scientist will follow their proper chain of custody and then examine that, examine those drugs and then create a lab report to then tell us what it confirmed to be. So a controlled substance or a drug. So when you say chain of custody, is that provided by statute, a.k.a. law of the state, or how does that work? So chain of custody is department-based. Each department will have their own guidelines as to what they will follow. It usually entails only one officer on scene touching the substance, for example. It could mean you have to wear gloves. It has to be in a certain bag that they put the evidence in. Um, it has to be one person, let's say, follow that item, hold on to that item until they bring it back to their department and lock it up with their evidence tech. And then they have to do a whole report just on how they sent that evidence and how they received it. This is like SVU. It's exactly like SVU. Oh, that's that's exciting. But they don't tell you those details on the TV, that it's a lot more work for officers than just, I'm picking up a bag of cocaine from this guy who had it in his glove box it really can throw off a whole trial if an officer puts the drugs in his pocket instead of following his chain of custody and putting it in a certain evidence bag. So that's where the minor details, that's where the motions to suppress come involved, where you decide whether or not the drugs actually were handled in the correct fashion. And that goes with all different evidence. So like I said, fingerprint analysis, gun residue, DNA specimens, where it's from sex assault kits, it's from um, blood shatter on scene, anything like that. Uh, when you say motion to suppress, you mean like suppress the evidence, right? Yes. So whatever their conclusions are, if it's not handled properly, the defense attorney could file a motion to suppress and say, hey, let's we're going to exclude all this evidence, and that could potentially get the defendant off? Yeah, oh, 100%. I was in a first offender courtroom for, I don't know, nine, nine to 12 months where it's the entire courtroom is motion suppressed basically because they're trying to get their person off of getting a drug offense on their charge. And every little detail is looked at as to how the officer handled the evidence, was the crime lab following the proper chain of custody as to analyzing the evidence. And so aside from documenting, because I'm assuming like they can write whatever they want, do they, I mean, no. (laughs) they should write what's true but do they also have body cam footage like how do they figure out that they didn't do it right so body cameras new to illinois just this year actually or this past july i want to say it's just coming out more and more departments are using it but before this i'm talking it was you take an officer's word on how they handled Mm -hmm. it and i mean it's pretty clear too a lot of the times things will be captured on squad cameras so that'll show it you always have a second officer usually on scene. They'll document in their report. So everyone has to have their story straight as to what happened. I was talking to a lot of prosecutors in other counties surrounding us. I've always been blessed to have a their county crime lab, forensic scientists, or the state forensic scientists come to trial ready with questions, actually. So 
I have my part of quick questions that I want to ask them to get out that relate to the case itself, but they also come with their 35 or whatever questions that basically they know down to a wire. They don't want you messing with them because they know their field so well. And is that to explain what they do to the jury or to the judge? Exactly. We have set questions because to get them qualified as an expert, they have to answer so many questions first. So it's like the basics. Please state your name. Where are you employed? How long have you been employed there? What's your position? What are your primary duties? And then you start walking them through the training and experience as a forensic scientist. And then you have to talk about whether or not their crime lab is accredited. And that means that it follows national standards and that they receive certain training to get to those national standards. And then at that point, you're asking them about their specific position in that what type of either chemical testing, DNA testing, fingerprint testing, did they perform on a substance? Have they, how many times have they performed that type of analysis on those substances? And then whether or not they've testified in court, if they've been qualified as an expert, how many times? And then if all of those answers are fulfilled to qualify your expert, then you can tender that expert as an expert in the identification of XYZ, DNA, um, controlled substances, gun residue, fingerprint analysis. So that's how we get the expert in court, just getting them qualified. That's really interesting. So I used to retain a lot of experts for automobile accidents. Okay. Um, on on the way your body moves in a car accident to explain, like, could this injury actually be possible for this uh, plaintiff? And same thing, we would establish their credentials, their background, um, their education, their experience, whether they've been published in, in articles, how long they've been doing this for. Um, and it was really important to establish all that as well. And yours in private practice is so different because there can be experts all over the country. Yeah, we retain experts for insur- our insurance cases. So we represent insurance companies in torts, mostly. And those torts can be slip and falls. They can be big auto accidents. They could be um, toxic spills. And so we have to retain experts in like a wide range of fields. How do you actually get an expert in that field? So a lot of times we start by emailing the firm and saying, Does, has anyone retained an expert in, in this field? Um, if we have local counsel, uh, so, so for example, if we have a case in New York and we have attorneys in New York uh, who are assisting us, we can ask them if they've retained an expert in that field. Um, with the type of litigation I do, you have a joint defense group, so you end up having multiple defense defendants, multiple insurance companies that are defendants. Ultimately, that entire group will then talk about the experts we each found and then we get to the point of like okay who do we think is best and then one or two or the firms or maybe more than that depending on the case get assigned to interview that expert to determine are you good for us or not and I think that's where then experts come in handy with litigation for example if you have an environmental toxic spill that you're litigating over, whether it's covered or not by the policy, that's a very technical thing. That de- that has a lot of analysis of, of soil, calculating numbers. So you definitely need an expert to explain it well. And those are people that are very specialized in their field. And they same, same with your experts. You know, they've been doing it for a while and they know what they're talking about. Um, 
So they're not going to be cheap. Their time isn't going to be cheap. I've seen anywhere from 500, 750. I've seen over a thousand for doctors. If you're retaining a, like a surgical doctor to be an expert and those are also considerations you have to keep in mind when retaining an expert. You also want to review their prior testimony, whether it was in courtrooms or in depositions. Sometimes it's publicly available. It just depends on the case. Sometimes you can you can ask them for samples. Um, reviewing their articles that they've published. Are they credible? Are these articles like actually legitimate journals that you want to be reviewing? Anything that helps with their credibility to make them an expert but also anything that you're def- your what were the defense anything that your opponent might use against the expert whether to discredit them to impeach them you want to be aware of that yeah and you want to ask those questions when you interview the expert how i mean for like us when we're doing trials and stuff we meet with the expert a couple times it could be on phone on zoom or in person problem is though we want they want to make sure at least our experts that the case is definitely going to trial because they don't want to come even if it's just across basically the parking lot from our county lab to where I work (laughs) but any time that they take away from their office is taking away from cases that they are still working on Mm -hmm. we all know in Illinois that everything's backlogged right now evidence is crazy backlogged with drugs and all type of um, evidence analysis so I will wait till literally the last moment until I know my case is going to trial. Let's bring in the expert and then prep them for trial. Oh, that's very different. We retain experts months in advance of trial. That may never happen. We may end up settling, but that's the difference because we're paying them. They don't care. Yeah. We're paying them not just to testify. We're paying them to do the studies that they are supposed to do to write their reports. Like they're getting paid regardless. Well, like our experts... They've already done the reports and everything. So they have all their notes and on every single case. Anytime evidence is logged in with them, they have to do the analysis and do the reports. I'm talking about we're going to trial. I'm not going to actually prep them for trial unless I know it's going. But are they on salary? Yeah. Okay, that's, that, yep. that's the difference. Yeah, like they have to do the reports anyway. Yeah. Our experts do not have to do the reports unless we hire them. That makes sense. I think that's the gist of like how do you actually find an expert and there's a lot of other resources where you can look experts up online, like the Illinois State Bar Association, I know, has a repository for experts. Yeah. You can find experts through Westlaw, through LexisNexis, which are the services that attorneys use um, to do case law research, to find experts, and all sorts of different um, fun lawyer <laughs> stuff. But I think that takes us to how do you prepare your expert now for trial? And so you were saying you don't prepare your expert until you know that the trial is going to happen. Yeah. And how do you do that? We will subpoena the expert first, make sure they're available for a court date, and then as the trial gets closer, confer with defense counsel, make sure that the trial's going. As long as we know it's like 90% going, we then set up a time to meet with that expert, usually in our office. Sometimes we go to them. And you know, do you know that it's going because you've like had these conversations with the defense counsel who said, yeah, we're going, we're going. Yeah. And I mean, as much as you have conversations with defense counsel, there still comes times when people try prep like murder trials where they have all these experts come and um, prep with you. And then the day of the defendant looks at the experts in the audience and say, hey, I want to plead guilty, which sucks because you spent all this time and energy preparing for your trial. But it happens. That's the lawyer's life, which a lot of people don't realize behind the scenes that it's not 
SVU all the time that yeah. a lot of the times that you prep these trials and then they never end up going. But what, what, what percent would you say end up going to trial? It depends what courtroom you're in. It depends what type of crime. In misdemeanor courtrooms, I would say, which are penalties up to one year in county jail and anything less than that, a lot of times defense attorneys will set trials solely for the purpose of seeing whether or not your witness is going to come to court. And then as soon as they see the witness come to court, they plead guilty, which is super annoying. But so misdemeanors, I would say you're always prepping trials. You're always preparing. You always have witnesses come in. They get really annoyed because then the person pleads guilty. But it's also a win for the witness, too, if they plead guilty right then and there. And felony, you, I don't know the percentage exactly, but it's a lot more likely that a case will get set for trial and then you would expect, I would say, two to three continuances on that trial date. I'd be, I'd be shocked if your case was set for trial one time and then it actually went for trial that time. And it's usually on both parts. It's either an officer's unavailable their defendant has a change of heart and wants to think things over more so they don't want to go to trial that day or just something comes up with the judge. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you were saying, um, I just find this so interesting. Like I just see SVU in my head. But you were saying, so you, you make sure the, the expert's available, you make sure it's actually going to trial, and then what do you do? Our experts come to us with predicate questions, which the point of predicate questions in our line of work, at least, is to establish, one, do they recognize the substance that they're did an analysis on to um, how do we know that it's in the same chain of custody and that there were no tamperings of any sort or any um, outside influence affecting that item and then three is have how did they actually perform their analysis so what protocols what procedures did they take based on their crime labs guidelines based on national guidelines and then did they follow all of their steps and then those predicate questions form the basis of us then getting in to evidence that item. So you've established their background, their experience, their ex- which leads to their expertise. And now you are with the predicate questions, you're establishing the foundation, which is necessary for what they're about to testify, which is like, okay, now here's the actual evidence. Exactly. So then at that point, as long as we get those predicate questions in, we then show them the evidence, say, do you recognize this? This is the item that you did the analysis on. And then we're going to submit that into evidence at that point. And then we talk about those I, that evidence. This is the blood. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is the blood. Does it belong to the defendant? <laughs> exactly. So that's the SVU moment of your day. Well, it's kind of like, does for real though, like, uh, this is the blood. Does it belong to the defendant? How did you determine that? Yes, exactly. Oh. And then... Yeah, so that's the fun trial thing that you see on TV. <laughs> and it, and this kind of gets me thinking of like how important it is to cooperate with your expert because you're saying yours come with predicate questions because they're more experienced in that field. And that happens a lot too in, in my field is a person who knows environmental spills is going to know a million times more than I'm going to know, is going to know the types of questions I should be asking. So it's important to find like an expert who you not necessarily just get along with, but an, an expert who will educate you well on the topic. And so with my interview with Dr. Sue that we listened to today, I knew a couple of the questions I wanted to ask, but actually um, I don't play the whole recording for everybody because that would be a little long. 
Um, but there was another doctor there as well who was observing from Oregon and she was able to feed me some of the questions that I would never have thought of. Like, um, what are the types of products? And that's a good trial tip for attorneys too, is that you should never be alone prepping a witness because you want someone else there to find the questions that you might miss or to ask questions that you didn't think of yourself. And that's and think, what happened with you. Yeah, and I think even on this podcast, like we're, I, there was some stuff right now today that you talked about that I had no idea like what that meant. And maybe some listeners didn't know what it meant. And we were able to ask each other, same, same with the Botox, yeah. you were able to ask me. So I think it just like, yeah, it goes beyond experts. It's, it's in the practice of law. You should be asking each other questions and developing that case together. And in the practice of being a mother, you can ask other mothers questions. And that's what we're trying to do here is answer the questions for you as a mom and as a lawyer. And if you have any questions that you need answered, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at lifeandpractice.com or visit our website, lifeandpractice.com. We have a contact us page all the way at the bottom if you scroll down. And there's also links to our social media accounts. The one we use the most is Instagram. So you can check us out there at lifeandpractice.com. This podcast was brought to you by the Illinois State Bar Association, the largest voluntary bar association in Illinois. I've been a member of the ISBA's Young Lawyer Division since 2015 and will serve as its vice chair next year. Last year, I was also appointed to the ISBA Insurance Law Section Council. It's a great organization to find other attorneys with similar interests and to seek out leadership roles. Check them out at isba.org. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you appreciated and learned some things from Natalie's experience with Botox and both of our experiences with prepping experts and bringing them into a law field. And then we just want you to know that we are sharing our personal experience. We aren't experts in either of these fields exactly, but we hope that you've gained some insight from all of this.